Pod Only Knows is a Cage Club podcast. For other smart podcasts on culture, pop, and otherwise, go to cageclub.me. You can contact us via email at pok at cageclub.me. You can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. And you can find me at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker. And you can find the show on Twitter at PodOnlyKnowsPod. The show is written and produced by us. Welcome to Pod Only Knows. I'm John Brooks. And I'm Kelly Baker. What's new, Kelly? Oh, man, I'm just hanging in, John. How about you? Yeah. Yeah, same. I um, I've I've developed a some kind of respiratory thing. I don't oh, know no. what it is. Yeah, so it's it's one of a couple of things. It might just be a cold, which is I guess possible. Um, it's not COVID. It's it's so funny. Like this whole like it's not COVID thing. I'm really tired of. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has to say it though, right? Like you have I to know. make sure, right, that this is not what's going on. Yeah, no. But it's like for how for how much longer? Because I mean, it's sort of like the when is the the statute of limitations on Happy New Year? You know, like what is the day right when you stop wishing people Happy New Year? Is it like January fifteenth? I don't really know, but like. When are we going to be like, it's not COVID? I don't know. Never. I think the answer is never. <laughs> as far as it goes. Um, I mean, oh, God. Yeah. Surely at some point. I know. It's going to be like years and years and years. Yeah. Anyway, it's not COVID. But like, a, I, it might be climate change because oh, no. we have had so many changes in like barometric pressure. Yeah. And, and it's been like snowing and 20 and negative whatever and then yep. like 50 something degrees and it's just i i don't know i think yeah that's, yeah that that might be messing with my respiratory system but yeah no i understand yeah. we went from like the 20s to like the 70s and i was like we you can't do this to human bodies like this is no, no. good like no good at all right none of us are prepared yeah. for this kind of thing um we can't yeah. handle it. So, um, especially Floridians can't handle like 20 degree weather. So, um, none of us. Was it really 20 degrees? Yeah. In that, yeah. Thing, right? No, oh it God. was like we were not ready for this. Like, we had to turn on water so our pipes didn't freeze. Right. Um, yeah. That kind of thing. And Holy we're crap. Just not, we're not equipped for this kind of weather at all. Like, yeah. we're layering up because like we don't have weather gear. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think it ever got that cold in yeah, Florida. Yeah, it generally like, doesn't, but, you know, weird climate weather, climate change. Yay. Yeah, that kind of thing. Awesome. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So we also, like, we have, there's something about the way that, like, when there's either, like, flooding rain or a lot of snow melting, the way our basement, like, gets kind of mildewy, and I oh, think that also affects it. Fair enough. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So anyways, I'm going to see how long my voice holds out today. Okay. Okay. <laughs> hopefully, the whole hopefully time. the whole episode, yeah. but we will, we'll see. we will find out. Um, anyway, so that's some bad news. What's, what's your good news? Uh, my good news is my teenager won an award for digital yeah. art at the state level for beta club. So that is Expl our Translate that into English. So into English, it's beta club. <laughs> club right which is nerd club for those of okay you that i don't, never heard of you never, never heard, heard of, of beta club yeah nope. so it is nope. um so uh my team competed with art beta which is like nerdy artist and okay. competed with a digital art piece um this week and won 
champion in their division. So very cool. But yeah, so this is exciting for us. What constitutes, like, what was it? What constitutes Uh, digital art? Digital art. um, So in this case, it was art created on an iPad with Procreate. So, yeah. So anything that was created, like, digitally on a computer, this kind of thing. So, um, and this is a kid who goes around with an iPad drawing all the time. And so it was really neat um, to see the fruition of this and, you know, that drawing on the iPad actually amounted to something. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like any yeah. any drawing that yeah. was done yeah, digitally. digitally. Yeah. Okay. And could compete for this. So, I mean, the big deal here is that they had to make sure that nobody was sending in anything that was AI generated, right? So yeah. you had to send in like screenshots of you actually doing your work um, too, to make sure that no one was cheating, which is sort of terrible oh, wow. but yeah um, <laughs> cheating by like <laughs> drawing something on paper or or, or sending it through some sort of ai generator yeah. right sure, you sure, know, sure. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing but yeah so that was our big news this week so That's we're awesome. super excited about that which is very cool very cool and you know and now i have to live with a champion and the ego of the yeah. champion oh, so you know um, straight to their sort heads of thing. straight to yeah. their heads but yeah it's pretty cool otherwise yeah. um yeah. <laughs> so what's your good news this week besides the fact that <laughs> You're dying from some sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess I have to like, I have to now, now I have two, I guess. I guess I have to also champion my child, um, which wasn't going to be my good news, but now, now I feel Now you have to do this. Yeah, no. Um, So I'll, I'll just quickly give two bits of good news. Uh, My 10 year old who um, is in a regional chorus in Worcester, um, her music teacher at school. So in Massachusetts, there's this like state music association. Uh huh. Um, and they have a sort of like choral festival every year. Okay. Um, that actually, when I was in high school, like I participated in that as well. You had to audition. You have to audition for it when you're, I think, seventh grade and up. Okay. Um, but they have a sort of like junior version of it where um, you don't audition, but music teachers designate like four students. Okay um to participate in like the junior one of it okay and normally um the music teacher at my daughter's school only picks fifth graders she's in fourth grade oh wow three fifth graders and her so she was like super duper excited about this so she's got to go to she has it's it's really like boot campy so you go to this one really long um rehearsal at the beginning of march and it's like three hours long in the morning and then you have to basically just like practice the music on your own for the next couple of weeks. And then you come back and you do like a four hour rehearsal in the morning and then a concert. Um, so it's very like <laughs> it's yeah. it's very intense, but like it's a lot of fun. And, you know, you just kind of spend like a Saturday, two Saturdays, like just, you know, doing music with a bunch of people. So um, hopefully she's going to enjoy it. But yeah, needless to say, she was like very, very uh, she's again, very gloaty and sort of like proud of herself for being being the only only fourth grader chosen um my other bit of good news and this is i'm gonna i'm gonna um promote the other podcast for a second because it is uh as you probably are aware the 25th anniversary of 1999 and of course that's what the other podcast is about so jen and i on the other show we're doing a thing every uh twice every month um, at the middle and end of each month where we're going to be looking back at the equivalent period in 1999. So uh, our next one, which is about the second half of January, 
uh, overlaps with the January 29th premiere of uh, She's All That. Oh, fun. Yeah. So um, I I got to talk to the writer of She's All That, Arlie Fleming, um, for that episode. And uh, he was delightful and it was really great. And and he uh, and so there's some really good stories about the the production of She's All That um in that in that interview and uh he he didn't know <laughs> he didn't realize it was the 25th anniversary of his movie oh you surprised him. him oh yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so i was like well i guess you know i, I think you're gonna be hearing from a lot of people uh from 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 this point forward he's like yeah i never even put it together that it was 25 years ago and i was like well glad Duh. i'm the first out the gate so yeah. um yeah that was that was a lot of fun he was he was really delightful and uh yeah so listen listen out for that that will be available if you're listening to this when this comes out this that'll be available uh tomorrow It'll be available on the what's today 29th 30th 31st so on on wednesday so cool. um yeah go check that out that was that was really cool, and hopefully we'll we'll talk to some more of the creators of the movies of 1999 over the next over the next year because yeah, 25 years. Wow. Yeah. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. It does hurt. So anyway, that was a lot of fun. And um, what do we what do we got what do we got today? Oh, today I'm so delighted. Um, so this is one of my like heroes in American religious history that we're talking to today. So mm -hmm. I'm going to try really hard not to like fangirl too much. Um, so I know um, Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, but I still am a little <laughs> a little bit of a fangirl. So I'm going to try to keep it together, friends, but we'll see how well it goes. So mm -hmm. today we have Dr. Judith Weisenfeld, who is the um agate brown and george l collard professor of religion at princeton university she's the author of three books african-american women and christian activism hollywood be thy name and new world a coming black religion and racial identity during the great migration which i read for today because i'm a nerd um yeah. and she's also the director of the crossroads project which is a loose um funded project about black religious histories communities and culture judith thank you so much for joining us today i was just saying in our intro that um despite the fact that i know you that i have to work really hard not to fangirl over you <laughs> 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 because i love your work so much that it just takes me a moment to like calm down so i really appreciate you joining us and oh, um, nice. i'm honored that you invited me so one of the things that we like to do when we start is we often ask folks who are religious studies scholars how they got into religious studies so what brought them to this wild and weird <laughs> field in the first place how much time do you have um oh yeah all the, all all the, the time all the time, all the time, all the time you want. yeah it's yeah. up to you <laughs> well the i'll say one answer that people expect and that's partly true is that um i am the daughter of a an afro-caribbean catholic immigrant and a formerly orthodox jewish first generation american and grew up in new york and um, my father was not, he was not, um, no longer observant. Um, but my mother was very religious and I grew up Catholic and in, in Queens and um, it, like everybody I knew was Catholic or Jewish in some ways. I, 
if I go back and re- rewind, like there probably were some Protestant people there, but I didn't really didn't know that that was a thing. And mm-hmm. so I, um, I like to tell the story. We, we were kids. I have four siblings. We were in the car and my mother was driving and we were being annoying and we were asking her what religion our German shepherd was. She got really annoyed. Lutheran, obviously. Episcopalian. And and we just thought that was so funny because it just, we heard Episcopalian because we didn't know what that was. Um, So (laughs) I, as my graduate advisor said, I missed that whole Protestant hegemony thing in my youth. And when I discovered it, I was like, wait a minute, we're not. We're not it. What what is it out there in America? Mm. So that was you know one thing. And when I got to college, I just started taking, I just took religion classes as part of, um, gen, you know, general liberal arts education, and and yeah. um, fell into it as everyone you know most people do don't plan to do it, but just find it interesting. And I started out first taking. The courses that interested me most were early Christianity and Christian mm-hmm. scriptures. And I just, there was something about the historical sensibilities of that work that really captured me thinking about texts in context, right? You know, texts that had something to do with my own religious world and learning, you know, completely new things about how the, they came to be and the communities around them. And I think, you know, if we get to talk about the, work I did in New World of Coming, I think my interest yeah. in religions in formation really um, started there, thinking about early Christianity, right? Who joins these things and what's that? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, um, but, but I decided to, I think I was majoring in religion, but when I was in college, um, the divestment from South Africa protests were at their height on college campuses, and I was involved in in them at um, Barnard and Columbia. And it coincided with a visitor in our department, Robert Baum, who taught um, he taught African religions. He was that was his specialty: history of religion in West Africa. But he also had a lot of background in in religion politics in South Africa. And so he taught a course called Religion in Racially Stratified Societies that was a U.S.-South Africa comparative racialization course. And in that, I read um, Al Rabito's Slave Religion, mm-hmm. and I read um, Arthur Huff Fawcett's Black Gods of the Metropolis, which is at the core of that work on Black New Religious Movements. And, um, and I also read... Uh, things like George Fredrickson's white supremacy, you know, I can see the kind of long arc of, you know, that I followed from that course to some of the things I do now. And that's really, then I I switched from um, early Christianity and I hadn't done the languages to be, um, to do really advanced work in that anyway. So um, I switched to to U.S., to African-American religion and um, I decided to try graduate school. I, I wasn't. I didn't get a very good offer um, from the graduate program, but I, then I got an outside fellowship that I couldn't defer. So I thought, okay, I'll try it, and and I liked it. So that's how I got into it. 
<laughs> so, you know, when I turned, I really was, it was religion and politics was kind of yeah. what I was, I thought I was going to focus on and I, and I have in some ways, but I've done a lot of other seemingly yeah. disconnected things. One day, Kelly, we're gonna we're gonna get someone who is like when I was ten years old. I know. I just knew religious studies was gonna was like, but we're, I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. It's always people just kind of back into it. Yeah, no. I was gonna say it is. I love I love the meandering paths always that we have because it's it's so much. There was my path too, where it's like I took this course because I yeah. was like, yeah, let's see what happens. And then the next thing you know, you're like twenty courses down, and you're like, whoops, <laughs> you know, like another and another and, and another. another. Yeah, I'm actually advising a senior thesis right now. Now, um, uh, and and my advisee says she knew she was going to major in religion. I keep saying, "You're like you're the exception." Oh, wow! That the rule. It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> have to have her on the show. No, seriously, because <laughs> everyone everyone else that we talk to, it's so not like that. It's so um, undetermined until suddenly yeah. you realize that you've invested you don't all know this it's time. A thing, yeah. Right? I yeah. Didn't know it was a thing. Right. Yeah. Nobody and, tells and you. And then, of course, yeah. your parents are like, "That's not a thing. That's not oh, what yeah. I'm paying for." Or they're like my parents, and they're like, "Wait, are you going to be Mormon now?" And I'm like, "Wait, what? What's happening right. here? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, that's not what's going on here, you know." And then, or they talk to someone else, and they're like, "Oh, no, no, I know what's going on. You're going to be Buddhist." And I'm like, "I think we've gone astray, right? Like, <laughs> that this is not what happens in religious studies courses. Is they're not converting me. I'm learning about them, right? Well, yeah, you know? people think that yeah. you're going to convert them if you yeah. say that you work yeah. in religious studies. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's very much the concern, right? That was happening there but I think I think that your path is um so indicative and yeah. I think it's so yeah. interesting and um that you were started out with early Christianity is so fascinating to me too that you were there and then ended up in American religions um because I was always as our listeners to our podcast know I'm so far away from that right like it's one of those things where when john talks to guests about early christianity i'm always like this is so fascinating i know nothing about this but like this is so intriguing it <laughs> is sort of it's way true. like it really is well there really wasn't anyone in the department who specialized in american religion until mm -hmm. um i took my first american religion course in my senior year i think with randall balmer and he was oh, wow. still oh, wow. was in graduate school and was a visitor or something like that. Actually, the two, two really, three really significant faculty members in my um, undergraduate career were um, two were graduate student visitors on short-term contracts, and one was a part-time, um, a part-time uh, sister who, who oh, taught wow. courses on um, on ancient Judaism and early Christianity. Well, it's it's interesting too about the way that the field is still so young in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, um, that I don't know that we necessarily think about it like we should about that, about American religious history, but it still um, isn't an old field, right? It just, it isn't. Um, it doesn't have sort of a a really long legacy. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, Judith, but I feel like it that we can have that, right? <laughs> Where yeah, no, actually, I you're you're right. I I I mean, there it depends on how you frame it, right? Right. Yeah. Um. So uh, in the the field within, uh, I I went to graduate school at Princeton, actually. Um, 
and returned many years later. But um, the field in which, you know, the subfield in which I received my degree at the time was called Religions of the Modern West. Oh, wow. And um, some of the, the, there were only two, it was John Wilson and Al Rabiteau at the time, but John Wilson did his um, graduate work on English Puritans. And so it was, there were a lot of kind of Anglo-American um dissertations happening there and then so it wasn't even caught I didn't even get a degree in American religion so right. and that was in the um I finished in in 90 91 92 wow and um but I'm teaching uh I teach a graduate seminar on on religion and modern American history and culture and and I start in the first week I have students read a bunch of historiographic essays on you know like what is this thing and go back to um, I, sometimes when I feel very cruel, because I have them read it like for the very first session. Um, I use some stuff from the 1950s, but but I, I usually start off with a Sidney Alstrom mm-hmm. um, essay that is, he's writing kind of about how he came to write um that gigantic a religious history yeah. of the American people. Is that what the title is? I think that's close. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. That book scarred me, but yeah. <laughs> and that was the book Randy Balmer used for our textbook when, in my first course. And yet I continued. Um, but it, it's so, there's so much stuff in there. Mm-hmm. But so there's this, he writes a historiographic essay about, you know, what, what, is and I have several other ones that I have the students read about making the turn from church history to American mm-hmm. religious history. So that's one way, you know, if you think about American church history, that has a much longer longer history. history but the thing we think of, you know, that we do of, of American religious studies or however you want mm-hmm. right. to the, the right. tail and an end of it is, you know, does come out of that kind of turn that Alstrom was making and and Al Rabito was one of his students and um, who was then my advisor. So it is, you know, I can, I, I'm not, I'm not even, what is it? Six degrees of um, Kevin Bacon or. Right, right. <laughs> and two degrees of Sidney Alstrom. Right. Well, and you know, I was thinking about how my children troll me about, you know, like the, the late 19th the late 20th century, you know, like, or the, the late 1900s, yeah. right? Um, and how they think that that's like far away. But, you know, in reality, it's not, you know, um, at least for my sanity, I say that it's not. Um, but, yeah. you know, uh, that it's really the the distance is, is not um, so great there about that, um, about that shift. Um, so it is, it is really interesting about the development of these fields and um how recent they are and um and about how much like scholarship we have despite that yeah, recentness absolutely. you know is really interesting to you um well and also i mean religion is one of those things that constantly shifts and changes yeah. so the scholarship is always going to be yeah. i mean you know it's it, yeah. it's um it's a living it's a living thing it's a living history um so you know i think that you know, religious studies books that are more than 50 years old are pretty much useless. Right? You know oh, I mean? no. Like, or at least some of them. You know what I mean? I Like, it, it just sort of, it's one of those, but like, it needs to constantly be um, evolving because because people evolve and religion is, religion is people. Um, 
Anyway, I, I, Judith, I want to ask you a little bit about, we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, New World of Coming uh, in a second, but I also want to talk to you about um, the book Hollywood Be Thy Name. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we also try to do on this show is, is, is make people understand that religious studies is cool and we can, we can talk about, you know, popular culture and movies and stuff as well. Um, talk a little bit about that book and why why like your your interest in hollywood and movies and religion and sort of the mass media popular culture um as well yeah that book is um it's not 50 years old and useless no no, no, no it's, it's not, not. <laughs> old now not quite 20 on amazon uh, do you know i i used to teach that book to undergraduates and because it was so excellent and it was one of those things where i could show them that like look at film as like mm-hmm. a documentary evidence of religion mm-hmm. right and they would be like what and i was like this is so exciting you know yes, that we can, can use do this. this you can you do can this, do this. Yes. although <laughs> my advisor al rabito said you can't do this oh no Oh, no. So, um, again, to tell like the backstory, backstory, um, my mother loved um, Hollywood films from the 1940s, mostly, you know, she, mm-hmm. from when she was young and um, and went to the movies in Trinidad and and learned about America from there. And and so I grew up. And both my parents both loved movies. Um, my father recently gave me a bunch of. Um, my mother kept a daily um, diary of just mundane things that that she did, and and he gave me a couple of volumes. And I was pay- from when I was young, and he and I was paging through, and I was like, wow, you know, I remember going to that movie. I remember when we went to that movie, and mm-hmm. and we went to the movies several times a week to see all kinds of things. And so, I grew up. With my, you know, my father was maybe more partial to foreign films, but my mother really loved Hollywood and Hollywood gossip from the forties and fifties, and so um, I imbibed that. Imbibed that, and when I went to college, I, I sometimes, honest, I went to, I went to Barnard, and and it was the heyday of the revival movie theater, and I, um, I sometimes went to five movies a week (laughs) on campus for a dollar or a double feature or whatever. So I I saw so many movies when I was in school. So, you know, later then when I got to graduate school, it was, I I always tell the story. I think it's true that it was my first week on campus. I was browsing in um, a reading room in the library that was, that had reference books for African-American studies and I found a book called Black Film as Genre by Thomas Cripps from 1970-something, 78-something like that. And, I, and Spencer Williams, who I spend a good deal of time on in the in Hollywood Be Thy Name, was in there. And I was like, wait a minute. he had Because there, there was a chapter on the religious melodramas as a subset of Black Film genre. And I, it just blew my mind. I had no idea. And... So when I came around to trying to think of dissertation topics, um, I had when I applied, I had written that I was going to do what turned out to be New World of Coming, and I didn't do it for a variety of reasons, um, and I think it was better for it. But then I was pitching all of these things to Al, and he would. I don't think I, I don't think I would do this in quite this way as an advisor. But he was like, nope, nope. 
(laughs) (laughs) So this was one of those, nope, I don't think there's much there. He just wasn't, I was doing a lot of visual material culture stuff. He just was, didn't think it had legs or something. So I came back around to it and, um, and it, and I, it benefited from the, really every project I've done has benefited from from getting underway in a moment of a kind of surge of more general work around it. So black film studies was exploding when I was starting the research. And so mm. um, I just a lot of the historical recovery work and context other people were doing. And so I could really focus on on the religion part of things and make arguments about where that fit um, in the broader um, history. So, but it was when I finally decided to do it, it I was just kind of sitting around like, I, I spent so much time watching movies. How can I make work of it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there something there? And so, and there was. Well, I think those are the best kinds of projects though, right? I mean, when you can be like, how do I make, how do I make this work? Or I take something that I'm interested in and like turn it into something, right? Um, I just, um, I just pick like weird topics to do that with where I'm like, I love print culture, but I'm like, but I don't love the clan. Like, how did I do this to myself? You know, like this was a bad choice. Um, but I think that there is something to be said about taking that expertise you gain through doing all that film watching, right? Like just by the sheer volume of it and then being able to turn it into something like that. I think that that's really, um, the sort of experiential piece of it, right. Where we learn so much just by the viewing, um, that Mm -hmm. does something there, um, or it just unlocks something in our brain, I think, um, that we can then use. It's kind of an outlier in the religion and film stuff or in, in some ways in that, um, I did want to bring that and I spent a lot of time, um, learning how to, how to read films Mm -hmm. as, as media and, um, how to write about them. I was, um, I spent a year in between jobs at, at Yale, and I sat in on some film classes there oh, while I was working on the book, and um, I got to know some of the faculty there who were really supportive. And so I wanted to write about the films as films, right? Mm-hmm. Not just, not just as narratives, but as as visual and audio products, mm-hmm. right. and um, and then I wanted to, you know, as is clear and takes up a lot of the, the space in the book, I was interested in the production context and mm-hmm. how they came into being. And so that, trying to write about production, do some film analysis and reception to the extent that I could recover that was just took me a really long time to figure out how to put a chapter together like that. And that was the last <laughs> book I wrote um, it, before all of these, um, like the black press hall before all that was digitized. Mm-hmm. So I had to just kind of, uh, and I, I don't regret it and I kind of miss it, just kind of sit and read the newspapers and look for stuff. Yeah. 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 Microfiche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it took a long time, but there's nothing you can't, um, what I miss is the, all the crazy stuff you, that's like not what you're looking for. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah no. stum- stumbling down research uh, exactly. rabbit holes. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was one of the things that I missed when I switched from like the print culture piece where I was going through like all the magazines and like mm-hmm. newspapers because of like the wildness you find versus like me watching <laughs> things where I was like, but you find all this kind of fun stuff that's totally unrelated that you're just like, you got to see this, you know, like that yeah. stuff that you miss. Um it's definitely a, a part of that process where I'm like, I'm not going to do anything with it, but I kind of want to, you know, just to see where it goes. <laughs> yeah. So I did a lot of that. A lot of actually the archival work for that was fun. And um, I'm, I got really into censorship and the production code and thinking about yeah. that. Relation right. Race and religion was really interesting. Yeah. Well, what is what is some of the most interesting elements of that? particular part of it because i do think that's that's a big that's a big cultural story (laughs) right like the the um the censorship code and all that sort of thing well you know the i i one i had various versions of this project that i'm very interested in silent film and i've written about it elsewhere Mm -hmm. um and but i decided to pick up this story with early sound film and the first um hollywood all-black cast films that begin in 1929 with Hallelujah is the one that that most people uh, remember. And then as I started thinking about it, I realized that all of the these films where Hollywood is focusing on characters who are not, who are the main characters, right? They're not maids or butlers or slaves or that that these were all black cast worlds, so that was a choice, right? They decided to do that. But that all of the early films were all about religion, so that became an animating question for me um, before I got to, well, then thinking about some of the ways that black filmmakers spoke back to the worlds that Hollywood created. But the the emergence of this all black cast Hollywood film that's focusing on some kind of religious narrative really coincided with the production code and which gets adopted in 1930 and begins to be enforced with teeth in 1934 and it's built mm-hmm. out of a predecessor that that hallelujah is is um organized around called the don'ts and be careful and some of the principles are you know carried <laughs> forward and so you know that's an, an interesting coincidence it's not i'm, I'm not making any major meaning of it, but that these early films are produced under what's emerging as a censorship code that is, that's norming particular kinds of religious representations. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's coming out of mostly um, Catholic concerns about reli- um, po- um, popular culture and morality. And then it's administered by um, Will, Will Hayes, who's a Presbyterian layman. And so there, one, for me, the interesting thing was actually what could be done, what was permitted in a story that focused on Black religion that couldn't happen in a story with white characters. Because, you know, there's this Hallelujah is the story of this um, uh, Zeke who, who's uh, from a large family. They're, they're sharecroppers, and he is bringing the crop uh, in to sell it and falls under the sway of this woman in a, they're in a bar room and he runs off and with her. And then there's a lot of stuff happens, but he, 
his brother dies because of his waywardness and he reforms and becomes a preacher. And then he goes back with the woman. It's kind of back and forth. And and the, the censors are writing, well, you know, this is one of the things you can't do in the production code is, is cast ridicule upon clergy. And, mm-hmm. and so they're, they're trying to figure out like what kind of figure is he or who is the religious authority in this film, right? His father's very um, upstanding and, and conducts some kind of marriage ceremony, but it's not clear he's a formal minister. And he's not really a minister. He's a revivalist preacher. So yeah, it's okay for him to, <laughs> to be like that. <laughs> um, and then there's this one um, telegram in the files where a well, Canadian province doesn't want this film shown, and the studio, the studio sends a telegram that says something like, "But tell them this is how African American religion really is." Oh wow! So we're fabricating these things. Like this is what it's like. And the the director, writer, and director King Vidor makes that argument. He's um, all the time. But so it's it was interesting to think about these representations in the context of, of something that in f- for representations of white people and religion, there's, it's much more, it's applied much more stringently, strictly um, for, for a variety of reasons. So yeah, that was one, one thing. And the kind of just the micromanaging of, of the costumes and the dialogue and it's just a fat the censorship world is really fascinating i just think it's so interesting that like the (laughs) the censorship like combined with racism it's just like you can't upset white religion so then you can show you know like you can show everything else just not like white people the way that religion actually works it's it's really weird the way that sort of this this obsessive um censorship sort of backfires it, like i just find that really fascinating as uh i mean the Hayes code is a wild time in american yeah. history anyway but like that's that's really fascinating. yeah no exactly right and this is why um i teach i haven't done it in a while but i teach a course on religion in american film and um i like to show although it's very hard to get um uh, frank capra's the miracle woman with barbara stanwyck from 19 i want to say 30 three, maybe it falls in that window of um, the code was passed, but they're not really uh, enforcing it. And Barbara Stanwyck made just a ton of movies that violate as many of these things as you could find. And (laughs) if you haven't seen Babyface, it's like just one of the greatest movies of all time in this regard. But so, so the Miracle Woman is Amy Semple McPherson. And it's, um it i don't know if the reason we don't have it on dvd has something to do with the long tale of censorship but it was a kind of, it was a stand in for capra for wanting to do elmer gantry which um was on a list there were there were these lists of of pre-existing properties um novels plays that the production code administration really didn't want studios to make. And it wasn't a kind of formal ban. And the production code, it should be said, was self-censorship. It wasn't external. It was an agreement that these studios came to. 
But so Elmer Gantry was really on the kind of banned, you know, do not make list of properties. And that's why. And so that would show, you know, an unsavory view of, of white revivalists. That's why, you know, it's not made until um, 19, I think it's 56 with Burt Lancaster, something like that. It's quite, it's late. It's like as the production code is, is being uh, dismantled. Right, right. And that's very telling to me that that, that there's this, there are people who want to make this, but it's really not, um, it's very much frowned upon and we probably wouldn't have gotten past because it shows an, an unsavory view of the white revivalist. I was going to shift gears a little bit and so start talking about New World of Coming, which John and I both read this week um, and we're looking at and thinking about the way you put together this wonderful book <laughs> and thinking about the new religious movements and this construction of race and religion and identity, right? Um, and thinking through the ways in which oftentimes when, uh, so let me do it this way. So one of the things that you start off this book with is you start off with draft cards, which I thought was so fascinating, right? And how folks on their draft cards are working against what we would consider the um, conceptions of race that are being put upon them, right? So the draft registrant might want to put black as the identity, but they might want to put Moorish or something else, right? That they want to put a religio-racial identity instead. Um, and so I wanted to know, like how you came upon draft cards <laughs> as the way to like start this right project to think about the kinds of evidences that you're pulling for this project first. And we can get into the other pieces of this too, but um, you know, how you started with an evidence like this as a way to think about how identity is formed, right. And how people are pushing against the identities that are, put upon them or placed upon them and the sort of agencies that they're working out here in something like this that we might not consider that significant to begin with, right? But actually has a lot of significance. Short answer is it was an accident. It was totally <laughs> an accident. I, as I said earlier, I'd written in my graduate school application that I wanted to work on material like this I had read mm -hmm. in 19, the, you know, the main study, a main study of this, the first was Arthur Huff Fawcett, an African-American sociologist who did his degree at the University of Pennsylvania, he did an ethnographic study in 1940, 1944 of some groups. Um, the, the subtitle is uh, Negro Sects and Cults of the Urban North. And he did Father Divine and the Moore Science Temple. And there's some groups in his text that I didn't look at. And uh, and he didn't address the Nation of Islam, which is kind of interesting. But so I, th I was just in really interested in Father Divine from my undergraduate mm -hmm. days. And, and when I got to graduate school, I just, I thought, well, I don't know what I can do with this. That That's not what Fawcett did unless I were going to become an ethnographer, 
maybe follow up, see where these groups are. This was the 80s. Um, and and I, I definitely didn't want to do that. I definitely wanted to stick with historical work. So it did just really sit around. And as I as the study of race, um, critical race theory, racial construction, these things came into view in the late 80s and early 90s. And people started to think about the construction of race and its relationship to religion. And I was teaching a course that was like the one I took as an undergraduate. I, I started to think about these groups in that way. So not just as African-American new religious movements of the Great Migration that that represents some uh, particular religious creativity of, of migration and urbanization. And I, I was interested in that. And my first book was on, on er religion in New York in that period. But, and so urban religion is something that I'm also very interested in. But I started to, to think about how race was working in these groups. And I was teaching a graduate course just on, on, Black New Religious Movements was the frame, and not working on this as a book project at all. And and I but I wanted to to sit with students and read through some of the newer literature, especially on the Nation of Islam, like Edward Curtis's work, and and he'd also written about the Moore Science Temple, and and it just it just. I couldn't let go of this. Well, what, but people were, were not actually talking. The new scholarship was not talking about race in the way I was thinking about it. And so I just still had those questions. What did it mean for people to say I'm a Moorish American and right, to really take that seriously, which I didn't see in in some of the literature. I'm not talking. Edward Curtis's work is fantastic. Um, but he was in some ways more privileging the religion question than race. Um, Sylvester Johnson picked it up. So I was teaching this course. I had students reading an article by Jacob Dorman, who hadn't yet published his book, Chosen People, The Rise of Black Israelite Religion. But it was a book about, I mean, an article about Wentworth Arthur Matthew, one of the early rabbis who, uh, one of the things Dorman talked about was how um, Matthew said that he was from West Africa sometimes. Sometimes he said he was from the Caribbean. And so I just went into Ancestry.com to bring in some primary school <laughs> for that session. And I, the first thing that popped up maybe was the draft card. And I didn't even know draft card was a thing. And I saw that he had written, he had had the registrar write Hebrew in the box where, you know, where Negro had been printed, pre-printed racial categories. And so, you know, I brought it into class and we were talking about it. And, but I wasn't working on this as a book. And so I just left it. And, but I, a colleague was in my office and I said, look what I found. And we were talking about it and, and I thought, oh, gee, I wonder if other people did that too. And at that time, you know, I swear I've written to Ancestry and they deny this, but at that, they have changed the search architecture behind this particular database. 
because at that time I could just put in some racial categories from that I imagined that these groups would use. And a bunch of things turned up that showed me that there was a lot in there. Interesting. I, I don't think, I haven't done it in a while, but then there came a time when I couldn't find those things. So I was glad I had had created a database of them. But, right. but yeah, it just, so that, the two things that led me to actually work on the book were, one, I still had this question about what, what would it mean for us to think about these racial claims as just as important as the claim that they're Muslim or Jewish, Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the other, so I had that nagging question. So I always do have to have just a, a, a question. I just have to know. And then, but are there sources that are really going to keep me interested in, in a way, or my partner says, in a zesty way? So, you know, like the, <laughs> the censorship stuff was very zesty. Um, but so these, the draft cards and thinking about that, and then, you know, looking at the census and thinking about this whole world of, of, bureaucratic interface with the government where people were yeah. were like, no, I am a Moorish American or an olive-skinned Asiatic. And that just, it just mm-hmm. blew my mind. Yeah. And allowed me to yeah. turn from what most of the literature understandably did was focus on the charismatic leaders and founders mm-hmm. to turn my attention to how everyday people in these groups inhabited these identities. And so stumbling on that draft card kind of unlocked a a world of potential sources that that helped me do a lot more. And I would just always check in on Ancestry. I remember the day when I got got an announcement on the, I logged in and I saw Michigan marriage and divorce records updated. I thought this is amazing because because um, <laughs> I had been wondering if you're in the nation of Islam and you reject the government and you're it's so early you don't have clergy or anything like that right and yeah. Yeah. yet your leader says you must be married to somebody in the group how do you yep. do it so what were they doing and so I was able to find some some marriage certificates for early members it just i became like insatiably hungry for bureaucratic documents doing because <laughs> they're so much more interesting than you think put that on a t-shirt yeah insatiably hungry for bureaucratic documents um it's a great slogan i so one thing that you mentioned uh very early on and as soon as you said it i'm like aha uh because i i kept thinking about this while reading the book and that is um what these movements can kind of tell us about early christianity or vice versa and one of my frustrations as someone who studies a lot and reads a lot about early christianity is that so many people within that scholarship field just like seem to isolate it as like a unique thing that doesn't, you know, that nothing that's happened recently can like tell us anything interesting about and again, vice versa. So when we look at these movements and we look at what drives people to them, and also I think this this really interesting idea of like 
a movement that creates inclusion and identity, but also like thrives on sort of ex- mm-hmm. exclusion. Um, what what these things have in common? Like, what is it? What did writing this book tell you about the sort of sociology of religion as something that emerges and forms? And like again, why people join and 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 like what what the appeal is? I think the connection I might make to to that is, or it has to do with needing to get away from the label of cult and right. not in the sense of you know, the cult of Mithras or whatever, right. but um, did people call it the early Christ? Is there a liter? is there, is that term used to describe early Christianity? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. right, what, what makes, how, how does something we imagine as a cult become a religion? How do you mm-hmm. go from outsider to insider? And these groups I write about never really do that. And mm-hmm. and lots of people ask me, well, what, you know, why do you want to focus on these groups that were so small and marginal? Mm-hmm. What can they tell us, really? Um, and I certainly reject that, but I but I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make yeah. a case. I have one of my former students read the manuscript before I sent it in for production and I kept apologizing. Even though they were small, they were influential. And I said, stop, just cut all of that stuff out. And I did. But, um, you know, I think it's just a question of how just these general questions of who joins something at the beginning when the stakes are high. And that's what the, the bureaucratic paperwork really showed me was the stakes yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That these were not people who were and they're very ridiculed in the press and and lots of not just in, in the white press and the black press other kinds of in sermons other kinds of literature in in popular culture I had um I was going to have a whole chapter on these group how these groups were represented in in kind of theatrical productions and films at this time but it turned out to be mostly Father Divine, so I didn't want to do a whole chapter on that. But so, in light of all of that, and the stakes of not being allowed to vote, or maybe having your children taken away, or mm-hmm. these people persisted. So my question really was, who does that? What What do you get that makes it worth that risk? And that's right, that's a right, question. Yeah. That's certainly a question for early Christianity, um, yep. and lots of other groups in their earliest period. And so it just shows us how, what questions to ask, where to look, to see how people who join these groups balance the, those things. Here's what, what's at stake. Here's what I might lose. And here's, here's what I'm getting. And what I'm getting is, I concluded, uh, not just a a focus on the charismatic founder or leader because you can't explain why they why groups persist after that first yeah. generation and of course we have religious studies and sociological theory that helps us think about 
charisma and its routinization. But but I really found that that so much of the literature on these groups, again, because they're so recent and that just really focused on the leader. And to me, it couldn't answer that question of why people made that leap when so much was at stake. Um, but the, so, and the book that I, that is in the background that really influenced me a lot. And I read, I read it with undergrads in a course on race and religion last semester, parts of it where we also read parts of, of Kelly's book. Um, Oh no! Students, <laughs> oh, my undergrads love this. They're oh, mine as well. Um, that makes my oh, day. Yeah. Oh, I always, <laughs> we can talk about the 1920s and racism all day. But mm. so uh, we read um, David Chittister's um, "Salvation and Suicide." Mm-hmm. Why can't I remember book titles today? That that book is is a model for how I went about New World of Coming because he's mm-hmm. asking questions from this group you think is the most not religion. He's asking questions, very broad questions, just about how do religions work? Yeah. What draws people? How do religions change? Um how do the people in them make them and remake them? So all of that was kind of, as you say, it's it's not unlike the work one has to do to understand early Christianity. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me too um, when you talk about the stakes, where um, you know it's it's particularly with um, the peace mission folks who are abandoning their families, right? You know, families are like avidly looking for members who they can't find because their names have changed, for example, right? Or um, they can't get legal documents anymore (laughs) because their names have changed and they're fighting for this, right? That they want to be able to vote under their new names or they want a driver's license or this kind of thing. Um, So that uh, they very much are committed and they're parts of these movements and that they understand these identities as the the most pressing and that they're just not backing down in any way as a part of this. And I think you do this with such a like careful, empathetic touch um, as you go through this book um, that I think is refreshing when we're dealing with new religious movements. Not that I'm saying that new religious movements literature doesn't mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. I think that there's lots out there that does do that very well. Um, but it's just nice to read through and see um, you doing that where you can really see the struggle on the page of these folks trying to figure out how to navigate their worlds, right? When the world is pretty antagonistic towards them in lots of way, where they're dealing with structural oppression, they're dealing with the movements that they're a part of, situating them in the world, um, sometimes antagonistically, sometimes not. But I think it does a really good job of that, Judith. Um, and I really appreciated it. So um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I, I went in, all in in the introduction by telling the story of Love Nut because mm-hmm. I came <laughs> yeah. across her in the newspapers and the, there's, there's coverage even outside of the U.S. of this 
woman in Father Divine's movement who is uh, I, who rejects naturalization. She's an immigrant from the Caribbean. Rejects citizenship because she insists on, as the newspapers, or she's the judge denies her citizenship because the newspapers say she will not use any name but her heavenly name, her spiritual name, which is Love Nut. And she says, that's my name in heaven, and I won't be recognized if I don't use it. And the newspapers internationally are ridiculing her. And this was another case where I went, I went into Ancestry and I found her naturalization paperwork and her photograph is in there, which is amazing. And uh, on one of the forms, but I could see that she did sign her birth name as well as mm -hmm. Love Nut, and and the judge still denied her citizenship, and the newspapers just kind of ran with it. But I just I thought there that that getting a, an extreme case out in the beginning to, to show those stakes and show and humanize this person mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would set things off in a good direction. But I also wanted to show with the peace mission, which a lot of people don't pick up, I think is a, a little bit more um, unhappiness among mm -hmm. some of the members that comes out in letters I read. A lot, a lot of people wrote to Father Divine. They're complaining about people in the movement or how it's structured and certain things. So it's not that. Also, kind of show, shows other other ways in which the stakes were high. That people have given up so much and cut off from their family, and they're in there, and it's actually not always so great. So I, I, as I'm as I'm kind of reading, like I, I I was telling Kelly off mic that that this is definitely a blind spot for me, um, and I, I I learned a lot reading this, and I I kind of wonder what the it sort of seems to me like it's um it's a little bit of a sort of a moment in history. Um, obviously, I think people know about the Nation of Islam, and the Nation of Islam is still sort of. Uh, thriving today in some capacity, um, I think it's gone through some some changes, like since since the since the early days. But I also like I I wonder what the modern um, version of this is, and 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 if these movements are still thriving, um, and and if so, like where people would sort of recognize them in in modern America. Yeah, I for the book I was really committed to staying with the early generations and the yeah. source base was challenging for the nation of Islam in that regard. And I, I really, I tried not to read back mm -hmm. uh, literature that comes out, especially for the nation of Islam from the 1950s on. And as Malcolm X comes into view as a prominent figure, I tried not to read that back. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and really give an account of the, the early formation, but it, the Nation of Islam does rise to prominence as as these other groups are are becoming less of interest to members, which right. is a kind of interesting 
for a variety of reasons, but I mean, they, they all continue in some form. The Nation of Islam had, you know, it was on, it had a major transformation after Elijah Muhammad's death in 1975 and was yeah. reestablished by Farrakhan, right, to, to insist on, on the completeness of the early theology and no need to, to change and orient towards other Islamic groups. Um, the more Science Temple fractured, it doesn't come through in the book very well. Um, but after Noble Drali's death, several factions emerged under different leaders. But theologically, they remained very close to the original group, maybe through the 1940s, so the period the book covers. But after that, there are, there are lots of different so they, they exist, you know, the Moore Science Temple of America and the other factions that have kind of slightly different names might be incorporated or something like that. But um, several groups have emerged in the, in the wake of that that Spencer Du writes about in a, a wonderful book called The Aliites. So he looks at groups that trace their origins to Noble Drew Ali. So they may not be called the Moore Science Temple, but they they trace their origins to the founder of the Moore Science Temple. And he looks at them in, in contemporary American society. And some of them are like um, sovereign citizen sort of groups. His book is organized around how they see law as a central kind of theological organizing principle for them. And so how they mobilize American law in different ways. And so the landscape of that, I I learned so much from his book, is much broader than just the original successors of the of Noble Drulli's Moore Science Temple. So they're out there. If you hear stories of sometimes they will kind of squat in a property and claim ownership, they mobilize indigeneity in interesting ways in some of these. So that's the world of more Science Temple and successors. Um, the the Ethiopian Hebrew, the Black Hebrew congregations, those those still exist um, and have organized themselves under a group called the International Israelite Board of Rabbis, and they named a a chief rabbi. They hadn't had one since Wentworth Arthur Matthew died, but um, they named a chief rabbi. Um, in Chicago, and who's a first cousin of Michelle Obama, actually, or a cousin of Michelle Obama, maybe not first. So they exist, and and they've, in some ways, organized themselves because of the emergent, the rise of the Black Hebrew Israelite groups that I saw forming in the 1990s, mostly, Um, and they're but they're now in in the public eye for a variety of reasons because of people like Kyrie Irving and his association with them because of their their anti-Semitism towards Jews of European descent because of um, their several um, uh, murders committed. So the groups that are related to the ones I studied from the 1930s, 20s and 30s on are are working to kind of 
to distinguish their variety of claim um, because they recognize Jews of European descent as Jews, whereas these more recent Black Hebrew Israelite groups say that they are the entirety of the Israelite people. So there's some kind of jockeying and contention in there as well. Who did I miss? So Father Divine's group, Mother Divine died a few years ago. Several of the long-standing members died recently, and it's I I really don't see how it can last because of the celibacy mm -hmm. and just the conditions for people joining are just really aren't there anymore. So I. I don't see how it can last for long. Yeah. Kind of like the Shakers. And they've been in conversation. They recognize they're in the same boat. Well, celibacy is not technically, you know, usually a very good uh, method of, of long term survival for a group, uh, generally speaking. So, just no. you know, pro tip uh, yeah. to emerging. <laughs> but emerging if you're like there. in the eternal kingdom of God, you don't need to. to <laughs> do anything. Fair the, point. <laughs> yeah. The Peace Mission has a. Um, there was a Christmas card that Father and Second Mother Divine used to send out that said, one eternal Christmas, one eternal New Year, something like that. So they saw themselves in, in the forever. But yes, that, that is a problem. I, vis I visited. So I didn't want to, I said this earlier, I didn't want to, to project things back from now, but I couldn't resist going one Sunday that they, I think they're still, in the summers, they were open on Sundays for visits. And so I I put on evangelical dress, which is what they require, which means I had to wear a skirt, and which I don't normally do, people who know me. I say I put on the outfit I bought for my college roommate's daughter's orthodox bat mitzvah. Wow. That was that was right. And I I went over there. It, it's not that far in Pennsylvania and and it it was fascinating. It was I was really glad I did it and just to to think ahead to Mother Divine had had a stroke so she wasn't very verbal. So I got to meet her and they and they looked at me like, "Oh, fresh meat." They, they just kept saying, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> saying, like, we know you from somewhere, don't we? I was like, nope, you don't know me. But um, but I could see then that they that already the the members then had had taken on the the work of theological interpretation because Mother Divine couldn't 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 speak very much, and so you could really see how much the members were in leadership, even though Mother Divine was technically at that time. So I, I don't know how it, what it looks like now in terms of their, their banquets and all of that, but it was really, um, I'm glad I, I went and I got to meet Mother Divine. That's really cool. Well, Judith, this has been really fascinating, and I'm so glad you yeah. were able to join us. Um, we usually ask folks where um, people can find you on the internet. So if you are on... <laughs> what used to be Twitter and now is X. Um, or if you uh, want to direct us to anything that you are working on now that you want people to know about, that sort of thing, sure. uh, now is your chance. Okay. I am on X, J.L. Weisenfeld. And 
I'm also on Blue Sky, same same thing, but I got on there the other day and I realized that, you know, I'm I'm on Twitter to the end, I think. Yeah. So there there's that. And then I have a project called the Crossroads Project, which you can see at crossroads.princeton.edu. And there's a link there to a companion website called Spirit House that was designed by uh, a previous guest of yours, friend mm. of your pod, Megan Goodwin. And it has great resources on uh, Black religious histories, communities, and cultures is our tagline. There's some really wonderful material on there. So crossroads.princeton.edu is the main site, and you can find links to other things there. Perfect. Thank you. And thank you again for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.